if you're using the church Bible. And that's Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, 
who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank you, Marcus. Well, good morning. Morning to. Uh, one theologian uh, I looked up in studying this passage described. Romans as a cathedral of, of doctrine and theology, a wonderful cathedral. Now, I don't know what you thought reading through that chapter or listening to that chapter, but it didn't feel much like a cathedral to me. It felt more like a labyrinth. Uh, it's, it's a dense chapter, isn't it? It's a difficult chapter. So, uh, yeah, it's full of strange stuff about Abraham and religious law and jargon and, and things we're not familiar with. So let's just pray before we start that God will help us understand it. Father God, as we come to this chapter, we just pray that your Holy Spirit will indwell each one of us in a way that helps us to understand it well and to apply it in our own lives. Amen. Now, one thing that did help me begin to understand this chapter more, by the way, do keep your Bibles open if you've got them. It was page 1131. I think it will help uh, on on this one. So the one thing that uh, I learned that helped me was that Paul was writing to the Romans. Now, that may seem obvious from the title of the book, uh, but it's specifically a letter written to an early church in, in Rome. It's a church that hasn't been founded by any of the apostles. It's just grown. Whoops, getting ahead of ourselves. It's grown from uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers drifting into the city and forming their own church. And Paul writes to really get the doctrine um, sorted out. And so the people he's writing to are going to be a real mixture. There's going to be folk there who've come from a Jewish tradition who know their Bibles inside out. And there's going to be folk who've had no other religion perhaps in the past at all, no faith at all, or perhaps come from all sorts of other belief systems uh, scattered around uh, the Roman Empire. So one group the Gentiles, if you like, are learning a new truth. As Tim just said, a countercultural truth, actually. A new truth for the Gentiles. And for the other group, the Jewish believers, well, actually, it's not a new truth, but it's a truth they've forgotten. It's always been there, but it's one that they've lost sight of. So to both groups, and actually to us, uh, Paul is saying, look, we need to understand the Bible properly. We need to understand what's happening in the Old Testament because that was the Bible they had. Because the story of the Bible from Abraham onwards is showing us how God always wanted to be friends with us purely on the basis of trust and friendship. That's the message of the Old Testament and it carries through into the New. So we may not be in Rome like this, living like this, Um, But actually, we're a similar mixture here in our own way, aren't we? There are people here who have been Christians for many, many years, who know the Bible really well and can probably quote verses uh, at random. 
Uh, and there are others, others of us here, perhaps who just started Alpha, just started coming along to church, just beginning to explore what the Christian faith is all about. And Paul says to everybody here, to me and to all of us, wherever, uh, however long we might have been Christian, we need to hold on to this great truth, which was on the next slide, which is that it's all by faith. That's the title uh, of the sermon that Phil gave us. To put it another way, righteousness, being right with God, is by faith from first to last. And that phrase may be familiar because that's how Paul starts the book of Romans uh, in chapter 1, verse 17. And it was the same theme that Tim was preaching on, if you were here last week, uh, in chapter 3. The constant theme, this bit of Romans, is we can't do anything to put ourselves right with God. And if that's bad news, the great news is we don't need to do anything to get ourselves right with God. We can't do anything, and we don't need to do anything. And that's been the theme of chapter 3, and now we're on to to chapter 4, and um, we're thinking where Paul was when he wrote this. He was in Corinth, we think. And uh, I could imagine that Paul had had a long day dictation, getting chapter 3 out the way, Uh, I know he didn't quite write it in chapters, but there we are. You can imagine working through chapter 3. It's pretty hard work. The light is failing. And he wanders down to the beach. This is the beach at at Corinth, apparently, the Saronic Gulf. And um, I don't know if you were down at the beach yesterday, but whenever a bloke gets on a beach, he throws stones in the sea. Have you noticed that? It's bizarre. Women don't do it. I'm sorry, it is a gender thing. Men throw stones in the sea. So I imagine Paul did the same. And the other thing, because men get bored very quickly, it's only a minute or two before they start hunting around for slightly flatter stones to see if they can skim them, don't they? And you'll see that. You go down Brighton Beach, you'll see that. Well, when you see that, I think that's what Paul did. And I think he got up to five skims across the Saronic Gulf when he thought, that's how I'm going to do chapter four. Because that is how this chapter is constructed. It's a series of skimming steps, skimming across uh, the topic. By the way, if you go on YouTube, the record number of skims is 88, apparently, which is an astonishing little video to watch. There we are. Things you learn doing sermon research. Anyway, there we are. Here is chapter 4. There's this topic, skimming across, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. And it touches down five different times before it gets to sort of, the, he wraps it up uh, in verse 17. And these are, if you like, his, oh, I can't see that on mine. Can you see it on yours? These are the things that, uh, the topics, if you like, the touch points that Paul has. Going back to this theme, but he's saying you can't get right with God. We can't, don't have to get right with God by. And then these are the little touch points. We can't rely on earning our way to heaven. We can't rely on our idea of justice. We can't rely on some sort of religious ritual. We can't rely on simply being religious enough. And we can't rely on our upbringing and our heritage. Those are the touch points as we go through chapter 4. And they're all anchored on verse 3. I got ahead of myself. Um, Verse 3 is where Paul says again, the basis on which God dealt with Abraham, that sort of Old Testament great figure, He says he dealt with Abraham not on the basis of what he did, but you can see there, verse 3, simply because he trusted him. Abraham believed God, 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just belief in God was what put Abraham right with God. And so that idea of credit seems to launch the stone off uh, on its on its skinning journey. Now, the very first idea then is this idea of credit. Verse 4, Paul says, wages are credited to the one who works. And then he says, verse 5, but God justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited to them credited to them as righteousness. So the picture of the greengrocer is because this was my first job. Um, Judas says this can't be true, but I am pretty sure that my first day's wages was three and six, which means it must have been illegal child labor. Anybody tell me what three and six is now? Ah, oh, that's it. Excellent. Not 35p, is it? 17 and a half p. And my job was boiling beetroots. So the beetroots used to arrive from Covent Garden about four o'clock in the morning. I had to be at the greengrocers about six o'clock in the morning and start boiling beetroots. That's what I did all day, uh, for which I got three and six. And at the end, Sid, who ran the greengrocers, used to reach into the till, and I'm afraid it was cash economy, uh, and I got uh, three and six for my labour. And it was mine. I'd earned it. I'd boiled a lot of beetroots, and I was entitled to my three and six. And Paul says, but that isn't how it works with God. He says it doesn't matter how hard you work, it will make no difference at all to our standing uh, before God. We could do every good work going. We could recycle all our rubbish perfectly. We could serve on every church committee's going. We could do every, we could meet every social need uh, we could find. We could behave as ethically as we like. And it makes not a jot of difference in God's eyes to our standing before him. Paul says we're right with God as soon as we trust him. We don't get right with God simply by hard work. And the great news is we don't have to, which for me and my recycling skills I'm very pleased about. So there you are, that's the first point. And the stone skims on uh, and and we get to verses 6 to 8. And he's changed topic. And Paul says we can't rely on our ideas of justice either. Now, we've been catching up on, uh, this is Unforgotten, for those who don't know Unforgotten, but it's uh, been a big hit TV series. Uh, It's on series three. We're only on series two, so um, don't tell me what happens. But what I've noticed in Unforgotten, and the team are looking back on old cases, is that you kind of know they'll get their man or whoever, but they've also got their own idea of justice. And they sort of make their own decisions at the end of what's to be done and what the just solution is, having to solve the case. They have their own ideas of justice. And Paul says there's a danger if we think like that. We can't treat God's justice like that. And there seem to be two big errors, I think, in the way we think about God's justice. Um, On the other one hand... We seem to think very often that we've done enough to please God. And I know if I talk to folk at work, some of them may be listening to this later, uh, and talk to them about if you met God, you know, how would you stand before him? They would tend to say, I'll be all right. You know, I'll take my chances. I've I've done enough good, I think, on balance that I'd, I'd, I'd be all right. So we treat ourselves as though probably we're good enough. I've never heard anybody say, I don't think I'll be good enough. 
But on the other hand, we're quite clear that there are some people who God will condemn. We're quite clear there are some people who won't be good enough. We have our own standards. So there are some people, the, the murderers, the, the, the swindlers, the pedophiles or whatever, who we think God will certainly condemn. And Paul is really saying we're wrong on every count if we rely on our idea of justice. Remember, Tim told us last week, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Whatever we've done, whatever bit of good we've done is so pathetic compared to God's standards. We only deserve rejection. So we overestimate how nice we are and we underestimate hugely how good God is. That he forgives all who turn to him. God makes no distinction at all. His relationship with you and with me is simply based on trust and faith. And when he's looking at that, look at verse 6, Paul says again, we're right with God, not by what we've done, our works, that's verse 6, but accepting God's forgiveness. And he quotes another Old Testament character. He's he's looked at Abraham, now he picks on King David, verse 6 and 7. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Our idea of justice would say transgressions, sins, whatever, that deserves punishment. Verses 6 and 7 say that's not God's way. We are, we can be forgiven. Stone moves on again. And he starts talking about rituals. I couldn't think of a better heading, so I, I know it's not a word we often use, but he's talking about religious ritual. Uh, and in Paul's case, he's talking about circumcision. This is Jewish male circumcision, and of course that still is the sign of being a member uh, of the Jewish faith. But it dates back to Abraham's time. But Paul says it's just a sign. That act of circumcision is just a sign, and that's all it is. And he points back to verse 10. God was friends with Abraham. So he picks it up from verse 10. God was friends with Abraham before he was circumcised. His standing with God didn't depend on that act. His standing with God depended on him trusting him. And as I said earlier, the Jews already knew this. I'd always read this passage before, thinking, you know, Paul's got this fantastic new insight. But that's not the case. The rabbis had been teaching this for years. The Jews understood this, absolutely, and still do. But it had got lost. It gets forgotten. And I think it's a truth the devil still wants us to forget, isn't it? The devil loves us to start trusting in the outward signs, because that stops us, that diverts us from putting our trust in the living God. Uh, Our relationship shrivels up because we rely instead on just going through the motions. It's much easier. It's much more attractive. It saves thinking. But Paul says ritual does not put us right with God. This baby, who's looking a little bit surprised, isn't it, has not suddenly entered the kingdom of heaven by having been sloshed over. Baptism, confirmation, taking communion, as we'll do later on, Eucharist, if that's your... Your your, your terminology. Those are all signs. They're all reminders. And they're good things. But they don't, on their own, put us right with God. And the next point, really, is a bit similar. Because the stone stone skims on. Um, And Paul's now talking about the law. And when he talks about the law, this is um, 13 and 15, he's talking about the Old Testament laws uh, that many Orthodox Jews course, will still follow. Um, if you wander down the Waitrose aisles, you sooner or later you hit the kosher bit, don't you? Oh, 
if you were Orthodox Jew now, that is where you do your shopping in Waitrose, I guess. Um, and those are the rules that, that Paul used to follow. But in verse 14, he contrasts two things. Can you see that? He talks about the law and the promise. And he says the law, that's the religious law that God set us. And he said they were there to demonstrate God's standard, an impossibly high standard. There is no way you are ever going to reach God's standard. There is no way I have discovered I'm ever going to beat Clive Wilkins at badminton. Okay. I don't think I'll ever manage it. It's up there. For Christians, we haven't got to worry about reaching that standard because instead we have the promise. And the promise is just that. It's the promise of God's friendship if we choose to accept it. Now, I guess as, as non-Jews, or many of us will not be from a Jewish background, uh, we, we'd never worry particularly uh, about the law. But there is a, a direct corollary into our lives now, and that is simply religiosity, if you like, of just being religious and, and following uh, the almost the informal religious laws. And Paul says, you cannot be religious enough for God. It doesn't matter how keen you are on sound doctrine. It doesn't matter how many times you go to a Bible study. It doesn't matter how many times you come to this church. It doesn't matter how respectable it looks. It doesn't matter whether you wave your hands in the air and you're singing or whatever. All those things do not impress God. It doesn't make a jot of difference. None of them are necessarily wrong. They're good things. But it's not how you get right with God. Being right with God, Paul goes back again. Verse 13, being right with God comes through faith. And his last touch point really is, is talking about heritage. Uh, and here we're in verses 16 and 17, uh, where Paul says the promise comes by faith. And then there's this wonderful phrase that could be a sermon series in it, uh, on its own, so that it may, may be by grace and guaranteed to all. That's a very rich phrase. But the bit I want to focus on is that it's to all. Now, you know when you go to a wedding, if you're invited to a wedding, you're all there as guests and family and friends, but there's something special about family, isn't there? If you're not family, you're not quite in, are you? The family always have the photos first, don't they? And the family sit at the top table. And it's the family who can always run up and have a chat with the bride and the groom at any time, isn't it? And and the the rest of us are, are, are slightly sort of out of it. And Paul says... You know, it's not like that with Christianity. If you'd like, the people of Israel were God's family. And Paul says, no, no, no. The family of God now is everybody who trusts in him. Everybody who trusts just like Abraham did. God's offer is for everyone. Now, again, I I suspect many of us don't rely on being Jewish uh, for our salvation in this church. But I wonder whether we do sort of think... Well, I come from a Christian family, or my nan's a Christian, or I went to Aldrington, or Newman, or King's, or whatever. That will not see you right with God. It's a matter of a personal relationship with God, a personal trust in God that makes us right. And that's great news. It means that anyone from any background, any country, any religion now could turn, however far they are from God, they can turn to Christ and be accepted by him. They can be accepted by, look at verse 17, the God who gives life even to the dead. Everybody 
can turn to God. It's great news. And then the stone, as it were, sort of stops skimming. It's touched on all these different points, saying this is how you don't get right with God. You don't rely on earning your way. You don't rely on your idea of justice. Don't rely on religious rituals. Don't rely on being religious. Don't rely on your upbringing. And I thought, "Mm, how does this apply to me? Because as I was reading this stuff and unpacking it, I thought, I've heard this before. I'm rather fed up with hearing it, if I'm honest. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4. I've got the point, Paul. And then I thought, well, have I? And I just wondered if I was to ask, maybe the folk who are listening at work or whatever, if I were to ask people, what marked me out as a Christian? What would they say? And what would they say to you? Would they say, there is someone full of the Holy Spirit, enjoying God's grace and favor and love? Or would they say, oh, there is someone who's very busy doing church stuff, going to committees, behaves ever so ethically, you know, on every single committee, always at church on a Sunday? I just wondered, for me, Although I accept this in my heart and my head and believe it most sincerely, is that how I live my life? What do people see when they see you and they see me? Do they actually see a life full of the Spirit? Or do they see a life full of stuff? All very Christian, all very good. But is it, I wonder, just not pointing people to Christ? I don't know. That was, that's something I really did have to think through and still, still thinking through. And I think Paul worried about that too. Because as he gets towards the end of the chapter, he goes back to this fundamental question of who is right with God. You'll see that. Use Paul's language. It's in verse 24. He's sort of saying, if all this activity doesn't help, verse 24, to whom will God credit righteousness? Who is right with God? And the answer actually is very simple. It's in verses 24 and 25. That's why we've got a picture of the crucifixion. Who is right with God? It is we, it is us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's a great little short creed, isn't it, of what we believe. God raises his son from the dead after he's been killed to take the punishment we deserve. That's the justice. And his resurrection means we're put right with God again. That's justification. It's the great news of the gospel, isn't it? And it's in just a couple of lines. And why does God all do all this? Because that was his promise. That's Paul's big theme. That is the promise going back to Abraham. And simply accepting those truths, they will lead to peace with God and a right relationship. And that's how chapter 5 is going to begin. So I'm not allowed to go there, but it's, uh, that's the great news coming up. It's the great news of Romans that faith is all we need. So maybe, maybe after all, Romans is a bit of a cathedral after all. Maybe we shouldn't be so rude about it. The great news. We don't, we can't work our way to God. All we need is to trust in him. Romans 4 may be hard work, but it's great news. Let me just pray for a second. And then um, we'll have a moment of quiet while the music group come up and lead us in our next song. Father God, we thank you for this great news of Romans.
for thank you that we come to you just on the basis of faith. As the song says, thank you that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim. May I wholly trust in Jesus' name. Amen.